Thank you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Welcome, church. I'm Mark. Welcome to Resurrection Sunday. We're glad that you're here. And uh, if you had any doubts about whether or not to go to church, you made the right choice. Anytime you choose God, he meets you where you are. And when we encounter his presence, something happens. Uh, Perhaps you felt it already during worship. And there's more where that came from. Today we're here to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Before I get into the message, I just want to welcome a few people. I haven't seen Joyce and Julius for a while. Glad that you guys are here. And Rowell is back. And Leonard's twin is actually Leonard Kai Sr. and his wife Deborah visiting our church. We're glad that you're here. Congratulations are in order. He was selected as Executive of the Year. Congratulations. I was excited to meet one new person out front earlier, and that's Andrew sitting in the back. I was excited to meet Andrew because Andrew is from Ponape. And I told him in just three days, we are sending a team to Ponape because we are trusting and hoping and believing God that one day there will be a community of believers like this celebrating Resurrection Sunday called Life in the Sun, Ponape. Yes. So, Andrew, welcome. We're glad that you're here. As I said, we're here to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. When I was growing up as a kid, we didn't call it Resurrection Sunday. Uh, In our home, we called it Easter. And the tradition in our family is that Easter was more like a family fun day. So when we were little kids, we would wake up, and my mom would have hidden Easter baskets somewhere in the house. And so that was the big treat, to run around the house and find our Easter basket. It had our name on it. And the big highlight was to have the candy, like, all day long. (laughs) So keep that in mind as the backdrop of what I grew up with. We didn't grow up in a household of faith. We didn't talk about Jesus. We didn't go to church. And fast forward later, I'm 20 years old, and it's the first time that I ever give serious consideration to the resurrection. I'm a brand new Christian, and I I just received Christ. And uh, if you can imagine it, I'm, I'm a lifeguard with an afro out to here, riding a motorcycle, living the party lifestyle. And I've not been to church unless it was a funeral. And I've not read the Bible. And the guy who led me to the Lord, his name is Don. Don asked me a question. He said, um, if Jesus is alive, where is he right now? And I'm like, you're asking me? <laughs> Mr. Unchurched, I haven't read the Bible. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, blank. But you know, he got me started to think about that. And I thought, okay, if we're going to go there, then let's back up. Let's, let's back way up because Don asking me that question is like, he really believes this. And, but I'm not there. I'm not even close. Uh, I'm wondering, did he? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And even if he did, how would we know? And so that started me on this journey of starting to ask some questions. And over the years, I became aware that there are several theories about what happened to Jesus. Uh, One of those those theories is that uh, the disciples stole the body. They stole it. But that would be inconsistent with their behavior because if you recall, the night that Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. 
because they were afraid. Uh, there was one, the bravest of them all, Peter, and he fought at first. But then later when he was confronted publicly, even by a young girl, he denied Jesus. He denied that he even knew him three times. And so when Jesus finally appeared to the disciples, they were all in hiding. They were afraid of the Roman guard. So the idea that these fishermen confronted and overpowered armed Roman guards, which, by the way, is like today's, uh, wow, there's a bee right here, (laughs) which is like today's Marine Corps soldiers, the idea that these untrained fishermen, untrained in combat, confronted and overpowered armed Roman guards is very unlikely. One of the reasons it's very unlikely is because all of the disciples, except the Apostle John, they died a martyr's death. Now think about that for a moment. Who would be willing to die for a lie if he had not risen from the dead? You know, if they were faced with death, surely somebody would have given in and given up and said, no, it's not true. You know, we stole the body. People have, you know, somebody would have plea bargained, but people have plea bargained for a whole lot less. A lawyer comes to somebody and says, hey, if you admit to doing this, we'll reduce your sentence to just five years. That's it, five years, you're in, you're out, you move on with your life, you're done. But if you don't admit, then, and they find you guilty, we're going to put you in prison for 35 years. And so a lot of people, if they know that they're caught, they plea bargain. Why not? Take the guaranteed easier route. So imagine a lawyer comes to the disciples and he says, hey, if you admit that all of this is a big farce, we'll let you go free right here, right now. But if you don't, they're going to kill you. Now, if it really was a lie, somebody would have given up right there on the spot, no struggle and said, "Uh, yeah, you know, caught. But nobody did that. All of them except the Apostle John died a martyr's death. And it doesn't make sense that they would do that for a lie. So that's the first theory, they stole the body. The second theory is the hallucination theory. And the hallucination theory is that Jesus never came back to life. There was a bunch of people and they were having hallucinations and they thought he came back to life. I have a question for you. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's not in touch with reality? It's kind of a sad situation. Lord, help them. They need his presence. But if you have a conversation with somebody, like just five minutes into that, uh, you can tell that it can be like a strange encounter. And so if you met somebody like that, what are the chances that you would believe, that you would believe them? The idea that a bunch of people hallucinating started a following of devoted believers doesn't hold a lot of weight. Now, granted, there have been some groups in history, some crazy groups, like Jim Jones in Guyana serving their brand of Kool-Aid. But groups like that usually don't last very long, for obvious reasons. For them, it was self-induced. And so the idea of a bunch of people who were hallucinating doesn't hold a lot of weight. The other theory is called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is that Jesus did not die on the cross. He just passed out. And so later that day, they took him down off the cross. They couldn't tell that he was still breathing. They thought he was dead, and they placed him in the tomb and covered it with the stone. But later, he woke up. 
So here's Jesus after 40 lashes with a whip that's designed to cut and rip. And then he gets crucified. Then he gets stabbed in the side with a spear. And they take him down off the cross and put him in the tomb. And then he wakes up. And with his bare hands, he pushes away a heavy stone, which, by the way, his hands and feet still have puncture wounds. And then he overpowers the Roman guard. You know, that might make for a good movie. But even Jason Bourne does not go through that much trauma and then keep on going. There are some things that only make sense if the resurrection is true. The disciples in their day, they turned their world upside down. It would have been laughable had anybody predicted that Christianity would become the official state religion of the superpower of the day by the third century. And yet that is exactly what happened. And, since, and, and there were governments of nations that decided to base their calendar on the day of his birth. And since then, there have been literally billions of people that claim that he has changed their lives. Even devout enemies of Christianity claim they had encounters with Jesus and they became believers. The first one was the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. He was arresting Christians. He was having them thrown in prison. He was even there giving approval when Stephen was stoned. And then later, he became a believer and began preaching the same message because he says he had an encounter with Jesus. Events like these do not make any sense unless the resurrection is true. Now, I know many of you, you've already resolved this in your heart and in your mind. You already know what you believe. Um, but it's good to be reminded of the reasons for what we believe. Others of you, you're still in process, and that's okay. You've got questions. Questions are good. I had questions. Questions are fine as long as we're in the process of resolving those questions. And if that describes you, you feel like you've got some questions that you're working on, then I have a gift for you. It's uh, this little booklet here. This is called Jesus and the Intellectual. And you can, if, if this is something that you're still wrestling with in your heart and mind, uh, you can pick up a free copy at the book table in the corner over there after the service. The resurrection has many reasons that it's important. Today I'm going to cover just two. The first reason, and the most important reason, is that if Jesus rose from the dead, then it made valid everything that he said. And one of the things that Jesus said is that he would rise on the third day. And so if the resurrection is true, then his statement is true. In the Midwest, they would say, you ain't bragging if you can say what you do. The other reason that the resurrection is important is not only does it validate that statement that he would rise on the, on the third day, it validates everything that Jesus taught. And Jesus taught some things that are very different from the way that we think. For example, if I was to say to you the word greatness, what images come to mind? What do you think of when you think of greatness? Do you think of influence, power, maybe wealth, maybe popularity? Those are all the common images that are popular in the world today when you think of the word, of the word greatness. But Jesus said, he who is to be greatest among you must be servant of all. He just took all those ideas and turned them upside down. And he also said some very radical things. He said, 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words. And if the resurrection is true, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it makes valid everything that he said. Everything that he said. The second reason that the resurrection is important is because of something the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read it together. This is our text for today. Paul said, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. So, quick observation. This, the incredible greatness of God's power is for who? Yeah, everybody say, for us. Now, it's not enough just to say it's for us. The incredible greatness of God's power is for us who believe in him. What does it mean to believe in him? Because the devil also believes God is real. So what does it mean to believe in him? To believe in him means to trust in, to rely on, to depend on, to honor, to acknowledge, and to consider him as above ourselves. And for those who respond to Jesus in this way, Paul is saying the the power of God is for us. The power of God is for us. Think about that for a moment. What would that look like in real life to experience God's power? What would that look like? You know, we all have hang-ups and habits and hurts. Is it possible that those could change? Is it possible that some of those things that we've been living with all of our life could actually change or maybe even go away? Maybe even go away permanently? About three weeks ago, I was standing out in front of the church. It was nighttime. And uh, I met one of our young people. I've known him since he was about 10 years old. That was eight years ago. So now he's a young man. Uh, We had never had a conversation. And he came up to me and we started talking and I was asking him questions about himself, about his family, just getting to know him as a young man. And somewhere in the beginning of the conversation, he said to me, he said, I remember you. I was like, well, that's good. (laughs) He said, yeah, I remember you when you were at the other church. I said, yeah, yeah, we used to meet in Mighty. He said, I remember when you would speak there. He said, what happened to you? I was like, where is is he going with this? He said, I remember you would get up and you would stand in front of the podium and you would be like stiff. And you didn't, it looked like you didn't want to move anywhere and you would read your sermon. And he said, now you walk around like you own that stage. He said, what happened to you? I thought, well, that's pretty straight up. I said, well, that's an interesting story. I'll tell you what happened to me. Everybody knows there's a normal amount of nervousness that goes on with public speaking. But for me, it was like emotional turmoil every time I had to speak. It was like I was agonizing on the inside. I was super nervous. Everybody registers nervousness in different ways. For me, it's poor circulation. 
my hands would become blocks of ice. I'd be sitting down there. My wife would be holding my hand before I got up to speak, and she would be rubbing my hands going, your hands are freezing. And I'd go, yeah, I know. It's always like that. I would shake somebody's hand in the church, and they'd go, whoa, your hands are cold. I'd, yeah, just, it's always like that. I just kind of make some excuse. <laughs> it's always been that way up until three years ago. Three years ago, I'm visiting our Every Nation Church in Singapore. It's a larger church, seats about 500. They have three services on a Sunday morning. And while I'm speaking, my hand is shaking. And because I'm holding the microphone, you can really see it. And so I put my hand against my chest to hold still. Now, that's embarrassing by itself. But what's even more embarrassing is they introduced me as this guy who teaches about inner healing. So I get through the message, I'm sitting down there in the chair, and the music is going for second service, and I'm about to speak again. And I'm having this intense time with God. I'm just like, God, why is this always happening? What is the problem? And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to me. And he said, Mark, the reason that you're nervous is because you think people don't like you. And all of a sudden, the lights went on. And I thought, wow, that is so true. But it never dawned on me because I was like the proverbial goldfish in the fishbowl. I'm the only one that, the, the, the goldfish is the only one that doesn't know that it's in water. Everybody else can see it. But for the goldfish, that's his environment. That's all he knows. You need somebody from the outside to be able to look in on our so-called reality and speak truth about what is our experience. And you know, when I had, it was like a revelation. I thought, it makes so much sense. I understand now, of course. If I think that people don't like me, then of course I'm going to be nervous to get up and speak in front of 500 people. I thought, wow, thank you, God. It was like a breakthrough. It was a revelation. And so I got up in second service. I gave the message, and it just flowed, went smooth. I was like, wow, praise God, finally. Then a month later, I'm in Idaho, and I'm at another event. It's the 40th anniversary of Elijah House, and I'm sharing about what God is doing in Asia, which is amazing. That's a whole other story. But while I'm speaking, the shaking starts again. Only this time, it's worse. The whole lower half of my body is shaking. (laughs) And so I try to stop it by tensing my muscles, but that only transfers the vibration to my whole body. And so then I try to relax, and then I try to tense, and I'm like, what is going to work? And I'm trying to get through this message, and I finally get through it. And afterwards, an old friend of mine came up to me. His name is Rob. And Rob was uh, the first minister uh, that, that that I went to when I had prayer ministry. Some of us don't know that term. Prayer ministry is kind of like a spiritual form of counseling. And so Rob was the prayer minister when I first went there 17 years ago. And he came up to me after this 40th anniversary, and he said, hey, Mark, good to see you. He said, thanks for sharing that message. He said, that was great. I said, oh, really, thanks. I said, I was so nervous. He goes, oh, I I couldn't tell. I said, well, you know, you were sitting in the back, but if you were up front, you would have noticed. And then I began to tell him the whole story of what God showed me in Singapore. And I said, you know, I thought I was done. I thought I was over this, but apparently not. And he said, tell me again, what did God say to you? I said, God said that, you know, the reason I'm nervous is because I think people don't like me. And then he asked me the strangest question. He said, who else felt that way? I was like, what? 
what do you mean who else felt that way? I, I felt that way. I just told you that. He goes, no, no. He goes, let me help you with this. He said, who else felt that way? And all of a sudden, a handful of images just flashed before my mind. And they were all facial expressions of my dad. And I could see on his face that he felt that way. And something happened in my heart. And a tear began to roll down my cheek because I think for the first time I was aware and I began to understand how he felt. And I began to feel for him. And then Rob, very insightfully, he said, how does it feel to know that it's not your own? And then all of a sudden, my eyes started to well up, and we pulled over to a corner where we could pray. And part of the way that we prayed was, God, would you father filter my life so that the godly inheritance from my parents would remain deposited in my heart? But anything that is not from you, you would stop it at the foot of the cross and the power of the resurrection, and it would no longer have any place in my life or have any influence in me. And I tell you, ever since then, the level of nervousness just went way down. And so I turned to that young guy who was outside. I said, that's what happened to me. God healed me from a generational sin. A generational sin. <clears throat> there are some things that get passed on to us. We don't have, that's a whole nother message all by itself. Lord, help us. We only got 52 Sundays in a year, and 30 minutes on a Sunday is not enough to cover everything we need to live an abundant life. We're going to have to do some reading. And so I recommend this book. This is called Generational Restoration. Generational Restoration by Rob Morissette. Uh, by the way, Rob, the author of the book, is the guy in my story. He's the one who asked me who else felt that way. It's a great book. Amazon.com. Download it. You'll have it in 10 minutes. Generational Restoration by Rob Morissette. Let me bring this home for us. What lie have you believed? That's a trick question. Because if you believe it, you don't know that it's a lie. All of us are the proverbial goldfish in the fishbowl, and we need somebody from the outside to look and speak into our so-called reality. And God has the power to be able to reveal to you the truth. And the truth has the power to set you free. Paul said, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. Imagine the possibilities. Imagine God's power at work in your life so that you're at peace. Imagine God's power at work in your life so that you are entering into your purpose and your destiny. Imagine God's power at work in your life so that you are experiencing provision in ways that you had not imagined. Imagine God's power at work so that there's healing in family relationships. You know, some of our family dynamics have been going on for so long, we just accept that's the way it is. We don't expect anything to change because it's been that way for so long. But Paul said, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe in him. You know, the good news only gets better.
Not only is his power for us, his power is also in us. If you're a Christian, if you're a born-again believer, if you've received Christ, if you've received the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, we'll read it together. Next verse. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. Lives in you. When you were born, your DNA package was complete. Everything that you needed to be the person you are today was already resident within your body at conception. When you're born again spiritually, your spiritual DNA package is complete. Everything that you need to live a life of godliness, a life of godliness is already resident within your spirit. Now, you may not have developed certain things yet, but it's there. You may not have developed the spiritual disciplines of prayer and being in the word and talking to Christians and non-Christians about their relationship with God and all of that centered in Christ and walking in obedience. You have to, you have to develop that. It's like learning to talk and walk and read and write. I mean, we went to school for that. We spent years studying. We took exams. It was hard work. It's the same thing with developing the spiritual disciplines. You've got to be with Christ in the school of prayer. But when you finished your schooling, you were ready to work. In the same way, as you grow in your relationship with God and he teaches you, you get to a place where you're ready to work with God. Imagine being able to sense what God is prompting you, what he's inviting you to join him in, and then you follow the prompting, and then it actually happens. Now you're working with God. That would be an exciting adventure. It is an exciting adventure. Yes, it's an exciting adventure. Would you like to experience the power of God in your life? You have to want it. You've got to desire it. You can't be passive about it. You can't say, well, oh well, if God wants to say or do something in my life, he knows where I live. No, you've got to contend for it. You've got to fight for it. You've got to want it. You've got to be like I was in Singapore in that second service. I'm like, God, what is the problem? And then all of a sudden, God shows you something. However he does it, it's different for everybody. But he can speak to you and show you something that will take you on a journey to begin a new chapter in your life. So the first thing is you've got to want it. And then you've got to receive it. There's got to be a place in your life where it can land, a place in your heart where it can reside, where you can embrace it, where you can hold on to it, you can rely on it because God has spoken to you. And then you need to apply it. It's not enough to hear it or to want it or to hold on to it. Now you have to do it. You've got to follow up with obedience. And if you will apply the word of God in your life, you will get to a place where you begin to experience the power of God and begin to enter into the rest of his word. The things that God has spoken, he accomplishes. You don't have to worry about everything every day. You don't have to carry all the heavy burdens of life on your own. You can lift it up to him. Let him do the heavy lifting. You don't have to control your universe. You don't have to be afraid of what people will think or what they might do. You don't have to live in fear. You can, you can begin to experience resting in the power of God. Paul said, I pray 
that you will understand the incredible greatness of his power for us who believe in him. This is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. If you want to experience the power of God, it all depends on one prerequisite, just one. This power is not just for us, it's for us who believe in him. And if you would believe in him in the sense of relying on him, depending on him, trusting in him, honoring him, regarding him, and acknowledging him as higher and above yourself, then you will begin to experience the incredible greatness of God's power, which is for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have only begun to scratch the surface of all that you have in store for us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would open our minds and the minds of our hearts and reveal to us the greatness of your power, your power and your love for us who believe in you. Lord, I pray that in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead, that you will complete the work that you've begun in our hearts and in our minds and that you would allow us to enter into the fullness of our salvation. God, I pray that you would unpack our spiritual DNA and allow us to learn how to walk and talk and read and write, so to speak, in the spirit realm so that we can work with you. Father, would you bring it to pass? If you would keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'd like to address another group here in the audience today. As you're listening to me talk about a relationship with God, perhaps that's been something that's been on your heart and mind lately. You've been thinking about your relationship with God. In fact, that's why you're here today. You didn't come to church just because it's Easter, but in your heart, you're actually searching. And if that describes you, and you've never made a conscious choice to invite God into your life, if you've never made a formal decision to say, yes, God, I open my life to you and I invite you to come in, if you've never done that, but you would like to, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God today. The most important thing is that you simply make the decision and make the choice. And then just express that to God, which is what we call prayer. And so what we'll do in a moment is I'll pray out loud and you can hitchhike on my words. God will hear you. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm here today. Lord, I know that you've been getting my attention. Lord, I know that um, there's been some things that feel like they're missing in my life. And I'm realizing that I, I think it's you a relationship with you. And so today I'm here and I'm making a decision to say yes. I'm deciding to open up to you. I open up my mind, my life, and I'm inviting you to come in and be a part of it. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for the things I've done that have been hurtful to myself or to other people. And I thank you for Jesus and what he did for me. I open up my life to you and I invite Jesus to come in. I invite the Spirit of God to come into my life and to forgive me. 
And if you're praying this prayer right now, I wanted you to take a moment between you and God to receive his spirit and receive his forgiveness and receive his love because it's for you. It's for you who believe in him. And just take it in and soak it in and let him wash and cleanse and remove any guilt, any regret. Receive his love and his forgiveness and just let it cleanse you through and through, spirit, soul, and body. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love. And I receive it all now. I receive you. I thank you for forgiving me. I ask that you'd give me a new start in life. Show me the way. Teach me how to live your way. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. I ask this in Jesus' name.